Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Health Disparities Podcast, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. It is my absolute pleasure to interview today one of my former mentees, Dr. McAllis Hogan, who is the Vice Chair of Education and the Residency Program Director in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Prior to joining UPMC, he completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the University of Virginia and then a foot and ankle fellowship at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. In addition to his surgical expertise, which is why we have him here today, Dr. Hogan is very interested in healthcare policy and quality of care delivery. He currently serves as the medical director for outcomes and registries for UPMC, Donald F. Wolf Jr. Center for Quality, Safety, and Innovation. Last year at the caucus, he talked about the importance of patient engagement and highlighted digital tools that can optimize the engagement process that are being incubated at UPMC. This year, he is on a panel asking the question, is access to care threatened by new payment models? Before we get into our conversation, first I'd like to say welcome, Dr. Hogan. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Mason. This is great to be here and having a conversation with you on this topic, and uh, it's always enjoyable to be in D.C. <laughs> well, you know, I consider you to be a source of inspiration because here you are, and I want you to tell us a little bit of, uh, about your history and the evolution of how you found yourself from growing up as a young man in Alabama <laughs> who found his way to medical school and now um, in leadership at one of the uh, more prestigious universities um, in our country. So tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you, or maybe who. Oh, <laughs> so um, I won't take all the time for that. No, uh, thanks again. This, um, as you mentioned, I grew up in Alabama, played a small place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And, uh, my parents are still there, and from there I went to New Orleans to undergrad at Xavier University, Louisiana, and then to Howard Med School, where you know you and I met, and where you were as served as my first orthopedic mentor, and um, you and Dr. Grant at that time, and and others, and Dr. Rankin really you know inspired me and really gave me an opportunity, just an open door and access. As we have this discussion regarding access and access to care, you guys really gave me access to opportunity. Uh, and um, I think that is at the core of what this means, of this discussion, and what we've been talking about today and what we had in our panel discussion. Uh, and from there, during that time in D.C., I really enjoyed just gaining more knowledge of policy, um, healthcare delivery, uh, and that rolled right into my time at University of Virginia. And during the latter parts of my residency, uh, that was during the times of the debates um, and, and passing and evolution of the ACA. Uh, and, and from that, um, a, a lot of exposure, a lot of opportunities to just kind of listen uh, and understand. And I think um, that really gave me a foundation of, you know, there's more that we can do beyond even just being orthopedic surgeons. Um, and um, I was, I've been fortunate. I mean, from my time at University of Virginia, from my chairman who recruited me there, Dr. Lorenzen, um, and other faculty members there who really gave me the opportunity to really spread my wings and look into other things, and particularly in policy and 
um, even having the chance to lobby here uh, in D.C. with our academy during the National Orthopedic Leadership Conference. And then uh, from there, just maintaining uh, partnership with the National Medical Association, with the Gladden Society, uh, and having the opportunity now through Movement is Life over the last several years to you know, keep this conversation going, which is an important conversation. I've made it this way you know, to this point on the, on the shoulders and backs of a ton, number of people who come before me and people who tolerate me uh, and inspire me through their uh, tolerance of my uh, interest um, and, and the many things I enjoy doing. But um, I believe healthcare is dynamic in our country, uh, and um, if we don't approach it dynamically, uh, we, we won't be able to continue to evolve it in the right direction to ensure that everyone ha has access to appropriate care. And so um, at UPMC, it's been a great uh, environment <coughs> and foundation because everything that really is happening in healthcare is happening at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center from a standpoint of being a payer provider, uh, being in a very a competitive marketplace uh, and being an academic institution, uh, but also a community with a number of, you know, variable needs. And so uh, it's given a good opportunity to really explore my different interests and really build upon those things. How could you describe some of the in innovative um, approaches that UPMC has taken to um, maybe even addressing um, healthcare disparities, if in fact that's part of you know the mission that you all are tackling, mm -hmm. or are you looking at this more from a quality quality payment reform mm -hmm. perspective, where healthcare disparities may or may not be at the top of the agenda? No, I mean, a great great question and point. And so at UPMC, uh, from our clinical perspective and just our delivery model. I believe it gives a lot of opportunity for, because as a payer provider, there's incentive, there are incentives on both sides of the ledger. Um, and in the beginning and the end, it should be about the patients and how do we provide care to all the patients and all the members and how do we provide care to our communities. Um, and what, what I've found in a very short amount of time is that um, it becomes complex once the answer becomes complex and once it, when it's not simple. And, right. and as soon as it's not easy, it's like, oh, that's going to be hard work and how do we look that deep? It's not possible. And then you say, well, it's possible. You just have to be intentful about your actions. Um, and so for us, a lot of this did, a lot of our bundle work, joint replacement bundle work, did come out of the mandate with, with CJR and the CMS mandate. However, prior to that, UPMC has always, I think they've, they've built... Uh, a strong academic institution and clinical care model because with a lot of the volume of surgery being what the pretty much the largest provider in Western Pennsylvania, there's always been a lot of focus on how can we deliver uh, the highest quality care uh, at the most competitive and um, uh, affordable cost. And I, that has really been the foundation of UPMC since its, um, since its birth. Uh, and when you combine that with the collaboration with the University of Pittsburgh and our School of Medicine, there's always been kind of this opportunity to have synergy um, and two forces colliding to try to propel that theory forward. And so that's a positive. When we really look at, uh, from a standpoint of access, when we look at it from the standpoint of our health plan, uh, our health plan has a large population of, they have 3.5 million members and only growing, um, a large a percentage of that population is on is Medicaid based or needs based planning, uh, and so uh, it it incentivizes our health plan as well to really take good care of that population. Uh, and when you put those two together, um, you, it really forces you to look at things a little bit differently. Uh, even with that, though, 
the cost containment pieces are always the first thing that many people want to talk about. I mean, that's what we're talking about in healthcare now. If healthcare was affordable for everyone, truly, we wouldn't be having this conversation right. or these podcasts. Right. We, we would uh, it, we would be doing something else. But our current model in our country, it's it's not a sustainable affordability. So I think what our challenges are for UPMC going forward are how, how do we continue to provide the highest quality, appropriate cost, but all, how do we ensure the wellness and access to care for everyone and that when they actually do need care, how can we prevent them from needing care? How can we keep them well? But when they actually do need care, that they have access to that care with the best providers and that they're not going to find themselves kind of homeless uh, from a standpoint of a medical home and a treatment home because we know that that actually leads to poor outcomes for everyone. So that's the approach we're taking. We're constantly learning and trying to self-learn and evolve with that. So, so we've, we've learned over time that you know, the bundle payment uh, system uh, has actually increased some of our, some of our health care disparities in the form of cherry-picking, choosing patients who have fewer who have potentially better outcomes from the mm-hmm. very stop, start mm-hmm. and not um, choosing to offer certain treatments to patients who um, even pre-surgically have additional comorbidities mm-hmm. that may contribute to a poor outcome, and we call that lemon dropping. So, so with some of the reform measures that UPMC is putting in place, you know, how are you addressing that particular concern as we look to decrease healthcare disparities, but we know that hasn't happened. So, no, it's a great question. In our environment, one of the first things we put together with our joints, you know, pathway and program was really a modifiable risk as, as well as non-modifiable risk stratification. You know, the patients who have chronic disease uh, that is uncontrolled, um, and, but also different lifestyle factors that usually do not result or have a higher chance of them resulting in a untoward outcome following a joint replacement or any type of orthopedic, elective orthopedic intervention. Uh, And I found relief in that a majority of my partners and colleagues in helping build and manage this program from a surgeon standpoint agree that if we can really help patients modify their risk, the outcomes will be better. Now, with modifying the risk, some people, uh, some may say, well, your modification is, well, I'm just going to cherry pick out of that population. Sure, <laughs> and, sure. and that's my modification. I just won't see those patients. And so I think it is important um, as these programs are built that um, we speak about the challenge first. And, and that's one thing I do believe we did a good job of. We said, okay, we have a modifiable, we have risk. How do we manage these risks, right? So you're not going to change the hemodynamic status of a transplant patient who's already post-transplant but really needs a joint replacement. And all of a sudden, they have avascular necrosis of their hip because they were on long-standing steroids because of a chronic renal disease that was really genetic. So all of a sudden now, um, how do you manage that patient? I mean, in theory, medicine helped save their lives, but medicine also gave them an arthritic hip. Mm-hmm. And so uh, do you close your doors on that individual um, but so that was one of the first challenges. And with our group of surgeons agreeing on our modifiable risk approach, that has helped us. And so we essentially have patients go through a prehabilitation program that really looks into what is your functional status prior to needing a joint replacement? What is your uh, functional status prior to getting on the pathway toward joint replacement uh, and understanding what are the different you know, opportunities we have to optimize you prior to surgery. And that works across a number of chronic comorbidities such as uh, you know, hemoglobin A1C with diabetics, how do we help uh, with weight loss, 
how do we work, work with smoking cessation or nicotine replacement therapies to really help patients have the best chance and opportunity to receive a joint replacement? But also, uh, how, how can we help you just be mobile and be functional? Uh, and everybody kind of enters that uh, enters that pathway toward care at a different entry point. Um, and so we've tried to take done our best to take the approach of. Um, regardless of when or how they enter, how do we get them through? Uh, I think that's very important. And I was, you know, I was relieved this, we're not relieved, but I guess the better statement to make is I was, uh, it was a heartfelt receipt of an email this week of our large um, center of excellence work group, which has about 80 people on it. And individuals other than myself or the those who are running, they're managing the program, sending out emails talking about a lot of the recent literature around the risk of hard stops and diversion on hard stop medical measures such as BMI and smoking mm-hmm. and how they can be um, how they can be barriers to care. And I think it, it speaks to again, we don't have the answer, we're not a utopia, but it at least speaks to this is something that a population of individuals providing this care are thinking about on a larger scale. Uh, if you don't speak about it, you definitely won't do anything about it. <laughs> So. Yeah, that's that's um, risky in and of itself, mm-hmm. even having the conversation. Mm-hmm. So you all are to be lauded um, from that perspective. So I'd like to shift um, just briefly in our conversation. Um, I want to move back to you mm-hmm. because I regard you as um, uh, someone I admire, but also as a role model for other young African-American men who may want to uh, go into medicine, but who uh, may also want to be an orthopedic surgeon. You know, what advice would you give, you know, someone in high school or that person in college to who wants to follow in your footsteps? I mean, it may be even based off of, and you and I have tons of conversations about mm-hmm. what it takes to traverse this path successfully. But given you know the landscape and the climate of what we're enduring today, and given that there were more African-American males in, in uh, medical school in 1979 than there are today, what type of advice or support or encouragement can you give these young people from a realistic perspective? Because you and I talk about that. Often, no, it's it's a great question and point, and you know, I never thought I'd be the person someone would ask that, <laughs> that question. Um, let me start with this: the my perception of my path. I tell people all the time, and my wife, who you introduced me to, um, I say regularly, you know, I'm just the person who I've I feel so blessed and fortunate that I've come across so many mentors, people who are willing to help, and a lot of it is really. Um, I know it's faith uh, and, 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 and hope for, you know, just the opportunities. And, and when I look back on it in a very short career, like, you know, like a lifetime, I, I've been fortunate. And so, and then others say, and I think about when I give advice to others, how can you take advantage of just a crack in the door and, uh, and being able to recognize those different encounters and um, taking advantage. So when you say high school, I'll give my story. I mean, in high school, I had a very, my, my, I'm fortunate, my brother's an engineer, so he's, you know, almost 10 years older than me, so he's like a father and, you know, brother. Uh, my parents are very supportive, and football player in Alabama, that's what I did. I mean, everybody played football, but you had a good grades, have to have good grades too, otherwise I couldn't come home safely to my parents. <laughs> and, um, I was interested in medicine, I thought I wanted to do family practice or, uh, or pediatrics, because that's all I really knew, and 
great fields. And then I literally, once I broke my ankle, the, the guy who fixed my ankle told me I should think about orthopedic surgery. And so the reason I bring that up is because it was, it's one of, it was a gap in the door, right? It's someone who leaves a door open, um, open-ended statement. And, you know, sometimes people are trying to close the door behind you after the statement. They really don't want you to come in. But it was just open-door statement. And uh, if they're trying to close the door on you, if, if open-door statement, you take advantage of it. Explore it. You never know what you may find out. You may like it. You may not. But at least you have another experience, another skill set you can build on. And then you, with those, you can start, learn to appreciate when you're, someone's welcoming you in uh, ver- and taking advantage of that. So I just started shouting with that individual and white guy in Alabama. And he tells me, we talk about this all the time. He's still one of my mentors and and uh, still helps take care of my family. And his son's now an orthopedic surgeon. He came to do research with me last year. So it's a, it's a great thing to watch. At the same time, um, you have to be present. You have to be active and you have to be engaging and you have to be willing to go out of your comfort zone to kind of meet people where they are. And I think that um, is what's really helped me over the course of my career and up to now, because I've never been a really afraid to go where people don't know my name um, or where, in theory, it's an environment where, okay, maybe am I supposed to be here or not? <laughs> and um, I think that's important to do. And you don't gain courage to do that until you actually take some of those open-door offers so you can actually see what a closed-door offer looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that helps you move through the challenges that are definitely going to come as you move forward. And it also gives you the cue of when you do need to stick your kind of foot at the bottom of the door to say, well, hold on a minute. I really want to have an opportunity to be here and get exposure and learn from you. I won't get in your way, you know, and um, I won't be a nuisance. And they, and you'd be surprised how often um, sometimes the support you may have may be very passive, meaning they just are willing to let you be in the environment. But you need to soak all of that up. And with that, um, I think that's really what really helped me once I got to UPMC, just the environments where I just soaked up knowledge, observing, uh, and being willing to be places um, that are outside your own comfort zone uh, and... Uh, and all of a sudden people want you in their zone. <laughs> and so I think that's important. This entire uh, conversation is relevant to our discussion on healthcare disparities mm-hmm. because we know diversifying the physician workforce mm-hmm. is one of the keys to, to eliminating uh, healthcare disparities and increasing health equity. So I think when we have the opportunity to learn from you so that we can imbue that spirit of stick and mm-hmm. Um, endurance and, and, and courage, right? Mm-hmm. That young people know that that's what they need, mm-hmm. right? Be willing to walk through that door when, um, when it's opened, mm-hmm. right? And be willing to take, mm-hmm. to take that risk. So, so from your perspective and maybe even from what you've seen growing up in terms of healthcare disparities, maybe in your own community, mm-hmm. given the uh, disparities that you may see in Pittsburgh in your surrounding areas now, you know, what do you see the orthopedic surgeon's role uh, as being in helping to address some of these healthcare disparities? We've talked about it from a system level, but when we talk about it from the individual surgeon's level or even physician's level, what do you think some of the things are that we can do to address these disparities? Um, so I, I think orthopedics as a whole, we could do a better job of, and we're working toward it, but a better job of um, really taking command and helping steer and drive the delivery of musculoskeletal care overall. I mean, some of the challenges that we are dealing with uh, come at the root of permitting over time, as we kind of worked our way into hospitals, being very busy delivering you know, high-volume care, high-quality care, we've left behind some of the core teachings of musculoskeletal medicine. And mm-hmm. so what that has done 
that has actually put our entire population at risk um, across the board of what, you know, what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, when, do, when should you really be thinking about a certain type of intervention for a knee replacement, hip replacement, or you know, what joint pain actually is real pain that you should be paying attention to. Um, so that's one piece. Um, as, a, as a surgeon, I think it's very important that we, that we partner more and more closely with primary care. Because the value of what we can deliver for patients in regards to uh, the mitigation of joint pain and the the optimization of mobility is one of the greatest gifts you can give in medicine. I mean, our our patients are happy as a whole, so why not work harder to share that with the whole? And um, a lot of times that's not going to be evident without partnering with primary care, which are the true gatekeepers to that care. When you have that in mind, and maybe we do evolve how we think, you know, more primary care doctors are thinking about panel size and the patients who are presenting them as a part of their panel. And as more primary care physicians and practices are in partnership with health plans, they're going to essentially receive a panel that's associated with where their practice may be located or who's been designated to them. So once they actually start having to partner with us more on, okay, hey, I want my patients to get the best quality care and I'm following where, how they do, whether they get surgery or not, I think that's going to change, hopefully it will change more how we look at it as orthopedic surgeons. But from a standpoint of access to care, um, and as, as I spoke about in my panel discussion, over time um, and with the expansion of Medicaid you know, at the state level, with expansion of Medicare Advantage and different payment models, there is going to be a blending of where we are not going to be able to recognize who has what insurance. Mm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think that is the part that a lot of people are running from. You know, the devil is it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. And I believe um, as, as surgeons, we need to have it as musculoskeletal you know, care providers. We need to have a, a broader understanding of that and how we really help take care of a population. Mm-hmm. Um, and otherwise, um, our ability to maintain it in a sustainable manner will, will uh, there is no there is no corner of the world to hide in with this anymore. There are no environments to where in, the, in America where you can say healthcare is done perfectly here and everyone who crosses this line shall not be scathed by any negative aspects of care. And so I think that's what we just really have to think together uh, and more. But partnering with primary care and um, asking why our patients not doing well, I, I think that's very important. And if we do, do that more, at least ask the question again, coming out of our com- comfort zone, meeting people where they are. Um, I think we can we can get there, but it's going to take some challenge. It'll be, it will be challenging, and we will have to have some difficult discussions. Um, but but it's very important. Well, I think with, with your kind of leadership, um, demonstrating that the discussions can lead to effective outcomes, that that, and then you talking about it in forums like this, that um, more leaders might be willing to have some of those difficult outcomes. And as you spoke about the gift, the greatest gift that orthopedists provide is, you know, the gift of movement. Mm -hmm. I think that underscores, you know, why Mm -hmm. we have you here as one of our distinguished panelists today. Uh, Not to mention that you've been voted by your peers as a best doctor in America in 2016, 17, and 18. Proud mentor moment, (laughs) bragging. Um, but, But I really appreciate your time today. Um, as you were able to share with us a little bit about, you know, some of the health system innovations mm-hmm. and payment reform that UPMC is leading the way on, in addition to, like we said, having conversations around managing risk, 
and those modifiable risk, the modifiable risk program that you were talking about, and the prehabilitation program as well. I think those are types of innovations that mm-hmm. more uh, hospital systems could benefit from. And then more importantly, in my mind, as the, the master mentor at the table <laughs> with the junior mentor, um, you know, encouraging our young people to go ahead and walk through that door, mm-hmm. whether someone who looks like you is opening it or not, mm-hmm. when that door is open, Mm-hmm. Take a risk, walk through, see what's on the other side, and um, there's your, therein lies your opportunity mm-hmm. to grow and following your footsteps. So, Dr. Hogan, thank you so much for being here today. No, thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for the Health Disparities Podcast. Join us again at movementislifecaucus.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. New episodes post every two weeks, so look out for our special series featuring such thought leaders as Dr. Hogan from our partner organizations. Until next time, this is Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason. Thank you so much.